Welcome to the Gift of Addiction. Today I have a special guest. Her name is Laura. I won't give you her surname because she's speaking from a position of anonymity. And I'm, I've been looking forward to having somebody like Laura on the show because as she is speaking from a position of anonymity, this will give us a chance to talk about the 12 steps in detail. I have uh, seen Laura around for the last few years in recovery and uh, she is a very happy person, brings a lot of joy to, to recovery. And for me, I wanted to get her on because I think it's very important that people realize that recovery from drugs and alcohol doesn't have to be dreary, it, it can be full of joy. And I'm very excited to have you on, Laura. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Bertie. Um, yeah, it says we are not a glum lot. That's for sure. So if that's a takeaway, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I like to speak from a place of anonymity. Um, and when I speak, uh, I absolutely want to tell you my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous and my recovery. And I try to keep my opinions out of it. If I say something that sounds to be an opinion, um, Hopefully there is a page number in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous attached to that. However, if I give my opinion, I do not under any circumstance speak for AA as a whole, just to make that clear up front. I'm a member, but I don't speak for AA as a whole. Okay. Feel free to disagree. <laughs> no, that's fine because I'm not officially identifying as a member. I'm just fascinated to uh, talk to you because Fantastic. I know that you've been sober for a lot longer than I have and <laughs> you know things that I don't know. So I'm here to pick your brain and hopefully we can Beautiful. give the audience a, um, a clear perspective of what it's like to, to live a life free from addiction and alcoholism, mm. having once been, uh, you know, uh, under the spell of alcohol and drugs. So why don't we start with your story, if you want to just share absolutely. your experience, strength and hope. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting when we say like, how long have you been sober and stuff? And the truth is, if you're alcoholic of my variety, uh, three days is a really long time to be sober, you know? So it's not lost on me that no matter what length of sobriety you have, if you are in a state of no longer living in addiction, like that's a really long time to me. <laughs> For me, um, I don't know. I always start my story where I think it, as far back as I can remember. So I kind of start my story when I was five years old, to be honest. Don't worry, we'll progress quickly. But um, I've been angry since I was five. So it's really funny when people talk about me being happy and joyful because I am today, but I wasn't. Um, I've been angry since I was five. And my mom said that I was the angriest child she had ever met. And the reason that was always weird is because she ran group homes for severely and chronically abused children. So, you know, these kids who had something to be upset about. And the only thing that really happened to me around the age five was that my dad left me and a lot of non-alcoholics, you know, that's something that happened. So it's, it's just the only thing that happened. I wasn't severely chronically abused. I wasn't, you know, didn't have these really horrible things, but I just was restless, irritable, and discontent from the time that I can remember existing. Um, you know, my mom tried everything that she could to help me. I went to see like 10 therapists by the time I was 10 years old. And I knew that these people genuinely wanted to help me, but I didn't know what was wrong with me. So how could they, you know, I, 
it was like became a game of telling people what they needed to hear to stop to leave me alone um i was angry and i was a jerk and i wasn't exactly you know as a terror of a child but i didn't like acting like that way i didn't like feeling that way i didn't like being angry all the time i just was so as soon as i could find other things to change the way i felt i started doing that um i started appreciating attention from the opposite sex when i was like 11 years old i started smoking a pack of cigarettes a day when i was 11 and i have a 13 year old now and i can see how incredibly screwed up that is you know he's just a baby but um yeah smoking changed the way i felt uh boys changed the way i felt getting in trouble changed the way i felt and it just quickly progressed anything I could find to change the way that I felt because I didn't like feeling the way that I felt inside. Um, you know, by year seven, I was doing cocaine and, um, which progressed to methamphetamine. And by the time I was 18, I, um, I was in rehab for a couple months. Uh, rehab was an inpatient program in America where I'm from. And, um, at the time, the end of the nineties, like, I mean, it actually bankrupted my mom, my mom. So, uh, we don't have access to the healthcare that we do here. I'm very patriotic, Aussie, 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 love it here. But in America, like, um, rehab's about $60,000. So, um, me going to rehab for two months bankrupted my mother and it was tough love and it was like therapy and it was all the things that you would think would treat addiction, but not a week after I got out of rehab did my girlfriend show up, you know, with some meth and I was doing, of course, do you want some? Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, which just didn't make sense. So, um, when I was 18, my mom suddenly passed away. So she was my only parent and she passed away. Uh, I was still in high school and something I always look back on is when my mom died, I didn't drink or drug. I don't see my alcoholism in any way as a result of circumstance. I don't have circumstantial alcoholism. And the reason that I believe that is because people have had much worse lives than me and not become an alcoholic. And people have had much better lives than me that are also alcoholic. You know, I have two brothers. One, unfortunately, is an alcoholic. One absolutely is not. And we had the exact same experiences, you know what I mean? But me personally, I took that as a personal justification for basically being self-will run riot. Like, like you could not tell me what to do after my mom passed away. Uh, I, um, I started drinking, uh, not, uh, you know, soon after that, probably 19 years old. And, you know, I can look back and there was a time in my life I, that, that I wasn't completely out of control with alcohol, um, a couple times. And the, the truth is, is that the first time I can remember that, you know, I was between 19 and 21 and I could drink seven drinks a day and I could stop. So there was a point in time, just like the big book says that, um, that I could in a way control my drinking. Like I could, feel the way I wanted to feel with alcohol and not drink anymore and not create chaos and not create havoc. And the truth is, is that for that little period of time, I only drank seven drinks every day and my life wasn't a wreck. 
And then I spent 14 years trying to recreate that experience. And the truth is, is if I could just think, drink seven drinks, I probably wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be sober, you know, because there was this time that that worked. So um, alcohol worked from the first time that I drank it, you know, it made me feel different, happy, joyous, and free, basically. <laughs> alcohol gave for me everything that I wanted, was looking for that whole time. Um, I did not get sober the first time I came to AA. And I think that that's a really important thing to talk about. Um, I was 20 something, 24. I was in my early twenties and, um, alcoholism, it was, it was absolutely a problem. It was a Sunday morning and, um, I was drinking with one of my last friends and, I feel like people always really wanted to like me. They wanted to hire me. They wanted to date me. They wanted to be my friend. And alcohol let me be the person that you wanted me to be for a very short period of time. But I was chaos. Like alcohol is, for, with me is just chaos. And chaos is fun in our early, early 20s. But then it gets really old, you know, and people started to slip away and I became more isolated. Um, so the only people that I'd surround myself with were people that drank like me. So I genuinely did not know that it was abnormal the way that I drank. I just thought I was a good time. You know, <laughs> like I must just be more fun than you, Laura. Why are you drinking at 10 AM? You know, why are you not drinking at 10 AM, Brenda? It's delicious. <laughs> so I just thought I was more fun than everybody else. Um, it was Sunday morning. It was eight 30 in the morning and I was drinking with one of my last friends, you know, and out of nowhere. Sorry to said, stop you, Laura. Why do you why do you yeah. refer to her as one of your last friends? Because everyone who wasn't an alcoholic had left me by then. You know what I mean? I see. Yeah. So no one wanted to be around chaos after a while. You know, I was chaos. The book says we're tornadoes roaring our way through each other's lives, and that's how I was. I was a tornado. Um I didn't start out as a tornado though, to be clear. We quickly, you know, quickly progressed to that. It was about, um, it was 8.30 in the morning and my friend got an email from his sister and it said, there is an AA meeting up the road if you are interested at noon. And he was like, you wanna go to AA? And I was like, yeah, I do. And I thought it was gonna be hilarious. I had no idea what AA was. I thought it was a bunch of old men, white knuckling, not drinking. I thought there was going to be hugging and like support. And I was fully prepared to get drunk and just make chaos out of the situation. Um, so we got nice and drunk and walked up to the AA meeting. And the woman who walked in the room was my age, walked up to me as soon as I walked in the room was my age. And I was shocked, you know. Were you still in the States at this time or had, we, had you come to Australia? Yeah, definitely still in America. Um, I moved to, uh, I was living in Colorado at the time. It's kind of where I'm from. I'm from a lot of places, but I was living in Colorado at the time. Yeah. Um, I moved to Australia in 2008, but I'll get there in my story. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All good. Keep going. Um, I walked in this this room and everybody was really nice. 
really nice to the point where I was like, I'm probably not an alcoholic because alcoholics are nice and I am not. <laughs> so I just couldn't relate to how nice they were. But this woman walked up and she was my age and she was sweet and she was nice. And um, she told me things like, keep coming back. And at the time, nobody was asking me to come back anywhere. You know, I was at a pretty ugly place long eight years before I ended up getting sober so the first time I went to AA was eight years prior to me recovering um but I was at a pretty dark place then so you know rock bottoms are interesting because to the outside world it looked like I would have been at a rock bottom then uh unfortunately I had to have it get much worse so I um Unfortunately, I did not hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous going to those meetings. I know that people were saying it, but I was not listening to it, whether it be I wasn't ready to hear it or what. I went to a lot of meetings. I love these meetings. Uh, I cleaned up dishes. I set up chairs. We'd go out to eat afterwards. I'd stand up and I would tell you what I thought the 12 steps meant. Um, <laughs> how little tips and tricks that I think you should have to stay sober. Uh, I love the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and about when I was there for about 30 days, uh, I went up and I accepted what a 30 day chip. So in some meetings, we, a lot in America, we hand out chips for sobriety, um, medallions for sobriety, uh, like recognition or birthdays. Laura, can I just and, stop you for one second? Yeah. Just want to ask you a question. So you say your first experience with AA, you didn't hear the message yet. You seem to give me the impression that you didn't really necessarily not like, you really enjoyed the vibe that you received. Absolutely. I loved, I loved it. I loved free coffee. I loved, I loved how kind everyone was. I loved women talking to me for the first time in my life. Um, a lot of care, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff to do, you know, just, it was, it was wonderful experience and it was nothing like I thought it was. Um, so I did enjoy it and I feel for that. I was very lucky. Um, but about 30 days sober, I went up to accept my 30 day chip and I went and sat back down and the guy next to me said, what are you doing? We drank three days ago. Uh. And the reason that he said that is because even though I was going to a lot of meetings and I was doing stuff, um, I wasn't staying sober and, um, I was drinking the whole time to, and, you know, everybody was so kind to me and they wanted me sober. So, so I thought it was a good idea to stand up and say I was 30 days sober. Um, so I just wasn't ready. And the truth is, is that I did not do any of the required things to stay sober that they suggest. I was just going there because I liked the experience. And, and, and I look at it now as I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. Um, so I left AA after, you know, about five weeks and went back out there for eight more years. And I was probably ready, you know, at a, at other people's vision of a rock bottom then. Um, some things happened, you know, I, I know in my heart that this isn't a willpower problem. I had a career, I was very successful. I met a man completely out of my league. Uh, 2008, we <laughs> met, got married and moved to 
Australia within media, within seven months of meeting each other. <laughs> so I moved here in 2008. Um, and it was, it was wonderful, but like some things eased my drinking a little bit. Falling in love eased my drinking. So it again, didn't start out like my marriage didn't start out. He wasn't married to a raging alcoholic at the beginning and excitement, you know, eased my drinking a little bit. Um, there were extended periods of sobriety, but the big book tells me that it's a progressive illness. So that it's going to get worse sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly as well. So mine was, you know, a little bit slowly. We didn't notice exactly. Um, we moved to Australia, which was just, I mean, ridiculous, amazing. I'm probably the most patriotic non-Australian in Australia. I love this place. Um, yeah, but my drinking progressed. So one of my favorite things to do would be is that I would get drunk and humiliate myself and ask to move. So I've lived in three states in Australia. I've lived in 17 states in America. Um, and things just got bad, to be honest. You know, like there were little periods of sobriety. Like when I was pregnant, I maintained sobriety. Like, and so I would think, well, I must not be an alcoholic. I could stay sober for eight months, you know, or however long I knew I was pregnant. Um, same with smoking. But the truth is, is that since I was five years old, I always had something. So at five, it was extreme anger and rage, and then it was smoking, and then it was meth, and then it was cocaine, and then it was alcohol. So there was always something, you know, and cigarettes and pills, and there was always something my entire life. I had no idea how to exist in the world sober. Um, so we moved from Sydney to Melbourne. Melbourne, you know, just rock bottom stories, just incomprehensible demoralization stories, like um, getting drunk at my best friend's fourth birthday, son's fourth birthday party, you know, and just starting like a food fight with these children and her family is horrified and um, just so, so many stories, but it just was never enough to think that drinking was the problem. I always thought that it, my circumstance was the problem. People were the problem where I lived as a problem. Uh, we, I finally said, how about far North Queensland? Maybe if I live on a beach somewhere, I'll be happy. And um, we moved up to Palm Cove, which is in between Cairns and Port Douglas. Beautiful, incredible place. And um, I would, I had, you know, it's in the big book, it's called pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And basically that's what my drinking had turned into. Mm -hmm. So, um, there are about 3000 people that live in this little city and all of the moms are on a Facebook mother's group. At Palm and, Cove uh, in Queensland. Are you talking about? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, Laura, just quickly, the, the one thing that is common in actually some of my previous guests is that the, what you're describing and they refer to it as geographicals yes in the program is that wherever you go there you are so here i am that bitch laura follows me around <laughs> <laughs> you thought in your in your alcoholic mind that a, a change of a geographical location would somehow change your uh situation change your alcoholism and Always. is that what the is that what the uh, rationale was that 
you would absolutely right that it has to be my circumstance as to why i'm drinking it must be because of my circumstances i i could not come up with another another solution other than it must just be my circumstances as to why i drink like this okay i want to get you uh, back to the story because you're telling me all these mothers in palm cove are all on a facebook that's where you left us Sorry oh, it's <laughs> so, um, you know, every single mother is in this Facebook mother's group and I got drunk and I decided to tell them all that I thought that they were bogan white trash, basically. <laughs> okay. That would have gone down well. Yeah, real well. So I woke up the next morning and I still get chills thinking of what those mornings felt like. And those mornings felt like, oh God, what did I do? And then it would hit me. And the truth is, is that I knew that morning after I did that, I knew I had a bunch of realizations. The first was that I would have never, ever, ever said that sober. And the next truth was that the very next thought after, oh my God, I can't go to the grocery store because we had one, right? I couldn't mm. show my face at the grocery store. Um, was the next thought after that. So thought number three was how soon can I drink this away? How, or how soon can I justify drinking this out of my head? because I had no solutions. I had nothing else. I would do these things. I would humiliate myself. I didn't want to be that person, but I didn't have another way to live except to drink it away. Um, right after that, I told my husband what I had done. And later, I'd really enjoy if I could touch on um, being married as an alcoholic, because I think we have some good insight there. <laughs> um, right after that i convinced him and i said maybe it's america we've been in australia like eight years maybe i actually moved to australia in 2005 please forgive me with dates because they don't seem to add up because i'm really bad at timelines <laughs> maybe i moved here in 2005 actually but we'd been here for like seven or eight years and i said maybe maybe it's america maybe i have to go back to america um i hadn't even visited in at least five or six years and um, I started making promises to him. I started saying things like my behavior is going to change. I didn't say my drinking was going to change, but I said that my behavior was going to change. I said, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a great neighbor because for some reason, every neighbor I've ever had hated me. I kept moving because all my neighbors hated me. Um, I said, I'm going to be a great neighbor and I would make up these people of who I wanted to be. And it says we have moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we can't live up to them. So the neighbor, I was like, babe, we're going to move into a new house in America. I'm going to be the neighbor that all the kids come over and I'm going to bake pies and they're going to come borrow sugar and I'm going to be the pie neighbor and it's going to be different. And it was the very, very, very first night in our new house in America. And um, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I do remember hitting my husband in the front yard and physically abusing him while he was holding my baby. 
and the neighbors ended up calling the police, you know, sugar Laura my ass, you know, now I'm the new neighbor, white trash Laura fighting her husband in the front yard. Um, I was arrested in front of my children. My children at the time were almost two, almost five, and six, and uh, almost nine, so eight. And, um, you know, my, my five-year-old, I have this vision of her face and she has this blonde little bob and these huge blue eyes. And she was screaming pressed against the window as they were arresting me in front of my children. Um, and even in that moment, like, I mean, things got a little bit worse that night. I still didn't see the issue. Like I still saw it as a circumstantial thing. The next morning I had what AA likes to call a moment of clarity. And, um, this is the, the best thing that's ever happened to me. It was 5 AM. I was walking home, hung over, miserable. I knew for the first time in my life. You're walking home from the I, police station. Yes. From the police station, 5 AM. I knew for the first time in my life that if my husband opened the door that he shouldn't. And I knew that if my children still had any less like love left for me, that they shouldn't. And for the first time it became clear that I could not blame any person, place or thing that I was an alcoholic and that alcoholism was in fact the problem, not my circumstance, that no matter where in the world I went, I was there and I was the problem. And my drinking was behind all of that. Um, the next day I went to a local AA meeting and we were back in Colorado. Um, and that meeting, I didn't stay sober, but I knew this time that it was going to work if I was ready to do the things that I needed to do. So I came home from that AA meeting and I got down on my knees and I looked at my son in the face who was eight. So like if I was on my knees, he was standing up and I looked at him in the face and I said, I'm going to be gone a lot because I need to stop drinking. And he said, I would rather you be gone all the time than drunk all the time. And AAs like to think that our kids aren't affected, but they, they are, they're absolutely affected. So basically he gave me permission to go do what I had to do. Um, I came crawling on my hands and knees the back the next day into Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, the woman that came up to me was about 85 years old. <laughs> there was only uh, six people in this meeting. It was a really small meeting. And I knew how it worked. I knew it was women with women and men with men. And the only woman in that room was this like 85 year old woman. And she had little circle glasses and she had a bum bag. And I was like, I'm going to die here because this is the only person here who's going to be able to help me. And um, I sat down at the meeting and I'm hysterically crying and they go around the room sharing and I'm hysterically like ugly crying. And the woman, the older lady next to me starts sharing and I hear her go, oh, and then I got out of prison for smuggling heroin. And I look at her and I'm like, my people, like, <laughs> you, oh my God, my people. And um, I always say I accosted this little old lady to get sober, but I did. After the meeting, I said, I'm sorry, but I can't leave until you tell me how to get sober because I'm going to die. And um, she sat there and one of the old timer guys bought me a big book and she sat down with me and she started reading the big book with me until I stopped crying. 
And I can see now that they probably all just wanted to go home, but there's this hysterical lady sitting there in their, their AA meeting. And um, yeah, she sat there and read the big book with me until I stopped crying. And then I went home and I kept reading the big book. And I got to the place in the book where it's talking about the jaywalker, which is one of my favorite stories in the book. And I called this lady to tell her about this story. And I'm reading her the story. She's 37 years sober. Like she's never read this story before. But I stayed sober that day for the first time in literal years, years, right? I stayed sober that day. And she gave me very specific instructions of how to stay sober the next day and mm -hmm. to meet her at another meeting. And, um, Do you want to share those instructions? Absolutely. She told me to get on my knees and to ask a power greater than myself with absolutely no instructions as to what that had to be, but anything that I could assume was bigger than me and ask that power to keep me sober for that day. And then, and that was it. And I did that very unwillingly. I too, like, most people who come to AA, I too was an alcoholic or an atheist until I, I took the 12 steps. So, so I had to be at a point in my willingness in AA that a woman was going to tell me to pray to be sober. And I had enough willingness to go, that's not going to work, but what fucking ever I'm out of suggestion. I am out of my own solutions, whatever. So, so Laura, um, this is at a point where you're desperate. You're desperate enough to do anything, and desperate. you. So you, you're taking instructions from this this woman. She's told you to to pray. This is just, you know, the following day, you, the beginning of yeah. your sobriety. I take it, and yes. I know because I've been there. I know what it's like. You, you say she told you to pray. What else did she tell you to do that following day that helped you stay sober? that day because it's really almost the yeah. important day of, of your sobriety yeah and every day is definitely i agree yeah so that meeting was really small and she said um she said she would personally meet me at another meeting during the day so i had instructions of how to pray in the morning and then at 12 o'clock she was personally meeting me at a meeting. So I had someone to be accountable to almost immediately. And um, she sold me this meeting. She goes, it's a bit, bunch of old timers hanging around waiting to save your life. And uh, I was absolutely thrilled that I had something to do that I could actually start, that this woman was 30, she was sober and that she might have suggestions for me um, because that was more than I had. So the next day I am in this meeting and um, it was very large in, uh, I feel very sad that we don't have them here, but it was in a club. So in America, we have a lot of AA clubs. So it's a space dedicated to just 12-step um, fellowships, Al-Anon meetings, OA, CA, all of them throughout the day. Um, there's a lot of service work. It's a beautiful thing, but the real estate in Sydney is so expensive. If any rich AA members out there want to donate me a house, I'll happily start up an AA club. So this is someplace where you can go 20, like 16 hours a day. There's going to be fellowship members hanging out at this place. Uh. So I walk in to this club and there was a bunch of people there, a bunch. And, um, this woman walks in and she was my age and she was beautiful 
and she was hugging everyone and she was laughing and I fucking hated her. I hated her because this woman was happy and I wasn't. And, um, you know, we go around the room sharing again and I was, and it was someone's birthday. It was someone's four year birthday and there was cake and everyone was talking to him and everyone was loving and laughing and make it a big deal about this guy. And I was asked to share and <laughs> I, I yelled at the entire room. I said, I'm so happy that you guys are happy, but I'm fucking dying here. And I said, yay for your birthday. You know, maybe I'll come back tomorrow because you give me free cake, but I don't know how to stay sober and I'm dying. And that beautiful woman who I hated was sitting in front of me and she turned around and gave me like a business card and it had her name on it and her phone number. And on the back she had written, if you would like someone to take you through your steps, I will. And I said, you must have some balls on you to think that you could help someone like me. And so I called her that night to take her up on her offer, basically out of spite. If you think that you can help me, go for it, princess, right? <laughs> and uh, the next day after that, she came to my house and started taking me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, is, uh, there are a few ways to go through the, the 12 steps through the big book, some longer than others. Uh, I feel very grateful that mine are just uh, through the big book. Um, it's very quick program the way that I personally went through it. Um, I was through all 12 steps, including my amends uh, in 30 days, the first 30 days that I was sober. Um, I had exactly what the book promises to happen, happen to me. Every uh, promise in the book or every step in the book has a promise attached to them. And I got every single one of those promises as, as it says in the book. Um, and can we talk about those promises? Can we just tell absolutely. them to the audience? Absolutely. I would love to do that. Do you know what page um, they're on? Well, a lot of people go to the ninth step promises and say that those are the promises of AA, but no, they're not. Like, they're um, not? They're, no, there's promises all over this baby, man. This is, this is a magic book and it is filled with good stuff. And every time I open it up, there is something else that comes, comes, comes out of it for me. This isn't. Can I, I've got I the, to, uh, the ninth step promises. Absolutely. So here's a third step promise. I just right. opened my big book, which looks like, um, it says that he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became, these are promises, less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discover we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We are reborn. I think those are some badass promises if you were an alcoholic like me. <laughs> At the I end agree. of my alcoholism, I was parenting my children from the edge of my bed. I couldn't get out of bed till like 10 o'clock in the morning. 
I had to employ a full-time live-in nanny, which I disguised as being posh. There's nothing posh about me. You're full of shit, Laura. But, um, you know, I disguised as being posh, but it's because my children were not safe with me and they weren't getting what they needed. You know, I would have to have them, my husband and my nanny, bring the children to my bed because I love those kids, but I could not stop drinking for them. And I think from the outside, you know, this is the baffling part to non-alcoholics is you have this beautiful husband, this beautiful children. Why can't you just stop drinking for them? Why can't you do that? And the way that I can, um, that thinking about drinking is, you know, people would say things like, why don't you just have two beers? And I'm like, well, why didn't I think of that, Charles? You know, of course, why can't I just have two beers? Because the truth is, is that seven, I was really happy with how I felt. At four, I was really, you know, at half the bottle, I actually felt great. So why did I keep drinking when half the, half the bottle was great? Knowing damn well that the rest of the bottle was going to make me turn into chaos. Knowing damn well if I kept drinking after seven, you know, I was going to wake up the next morning feeling horrible. So I believe that the choice for drinking actually left me long before um, you know, a decade before I ended up doing, getting well. Because Can we just talk about that for one second? Because that's really yes. important. And I want the audience, people who are listening to this to understand, people who may not be alcoholics, you said you lost no the choice to drink. Yes. And it, and that's a big misperception in mm. in society, isn't it? They, they shame people with, with the disease of alcoholism because they say, you choose to do this and it's it's right and therefore you know all the behaviors that go along with the as you described it incomprehensible yeah. demoralization that's is that so do you want to explain in your experience how just yeah in my experience the loss of choice i mean how does yes. that manifest in its in your experience uh so looking back, I would say it was, I started to lose that choice in my early twenties when I was able to drink seven, you know, it's very uneloquent the way that I describe, um, two things that differentiate me from non-alcoholics. Um, the big book talks about what an alcoholic is. And unfortunately there's a lot of, um, non-alcoholics in AA. There's a lot of heavy drinkers. That's another topic, but what it does say, it very specifically um, describes what an alcoholic is. Uh, the first part is that I have the phenomenon of craving. Now, if I tell you, do you know what the phenomenon of craving is? And you immediately could tell, like, a, know what that is. Unfortunately, you might have alcoholism. <laughs> Everything I've learned in AA, I would fact check with my non-alcoholic husband and non-alcoholic best friend. So I have the phenomenon of craving, which means that when I start drinking, I cannot stop drinking comfortably. Sure, I can only have two glasses of wine at lunch, and my husband will have two beers at lunch. But I ask him, how do you feel after lunch? And he would say, I feel a bit sleepy. But then he'd go back to work, not drink again, have a pleasant day. After lunch of having two glasses of wine, I felt like my skin was being ripped off. I felt so profoundly uncomfortable inside that I wanted to throw myself in front of a bus until I could get home and continue to drink. 
that's the phenomenon of craving and non-alcoholics don't have that. And if they don't have that, how would they ever know what I'm talking about? Why can't I just drink two? Because at two, my skin and stopping makes my skin want to crawl off. So I have the phenomenon of craving, which means that I cannot stop drinking until I'm done. And I don't have control over what time that's going to be. Now, people will say, great, you have the phenomenon of craving. Why don't you just not drink? Another great idea, Brenda, like I haven't thought of that. Yeah. So I have another thing that makes me an alcoholic, which non-alcoholics do not do. I have a mental obsession with alcohol, which non-alcoholics don't have. The way I describe that is uh, like a couple months ago, I went out uh, to like trivia night with my husband and he had a beer. Okay. And then he finished that beer and the beer sat there empty on the table for about an hour and a half. And finally I looked over and I said, are you going to get another beer? And he goes, no, I'm fine. And I go, have you been thinking about getting another beer for the past hour? And he goes, no. And I go, well, I've been thinking about you getting another beer. Now, don't get me wrong. The compulsion <laughs> to drink has been removed. But that observation, that thought of, of things like that, non-alcoholics don't have that. What it meant for my alcoholism is that no matter, this is the most important thing I can say to an alcoholic and someone who wants to know about alcoholism, no matter what rules I set in place for myself, which were many, no matter what consequences I knew would come from drinking, no matter what uh, benefits I knew would come from not drinking, no matter what rules, boundaries, and limitations made for myself, no matter what health problems had arose, no matter what other other people threatened to do or not do if I drank or not drank, no matter what benefit it would cost to my life not to drink, no matter what reasons I had, no matter what event, no matter what person came about, at some point in time, my brain would say, fuck it, and I would drink. Uh -huh. That's so, can, it. Can, Laura, so you yeah. described the, the physical phenomenon of craving that occurs yes. after you've had the first drink. The first. But the mental obsession you're describing, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that occurs during periods when you're you're not drinking, periods of sobriety where you're obsessing Absolutely. about getting the drink. And once you then take that first drink, that's when the phenomenon of craving kicks in. Is that right? Absolutely. So my brain says, fuck it. And I don't have a mental defense against that I wish I had a more eloquent way to say it, but I'm not kidding. The first 30, the first couple days in AA, I remember going, okay, Laura, be, be aware of every time your brain says, fuck it, let's drink just for today. Okay. And things, I was moving a stick in the backyard and it hit my leg and I saw my brain go, fuck it, let's drink. And I walked in my son's bedroom and he didn't make the bed and my brain said fuck it let's drink all these like ridiculous things that my brain will say fuck it against and i didn't have any mental defense against that so if i really understand that i have a mental obsession with alcohol which means that at some point in time no matter what i do my brain will say fuck it i will have one drink go in in with the intention of two to seven, I will have a drink and I don't know how much alcohol that's going to be. If it's a sip, 
if it's a gulp, if it's a beer, the phenomenon of craving kicks off in me and I cannot comfortably stop drinking. So I have two things in me that I know now non-alcoholics don't have. And with those two things, if I really understand that I don't have a defense against either of them, that is what makes me an alcoholic. And that is why I needed a, something bigger than myself in order to relieve my alcoholism, that an alcoholic isn't choosing this. Mm -hmm. An alcoholic has two things that means that they should drink themselves to death. I know that I'm a miracle of just being sober because an alcoholic of my variety, you know, we're surprised that so many alcoholics die of alcoholism. An alcoholic is supposed to die of alcoholism. The fact that I'm an alcoholic sober is a fucking miracle, right? And that yeah. is probably why I'm so happy, joyous, and free today. I'm a walking, talking miracle. You know, it's awesome. Undeniably a miracle. So with non-alcoholics, yeah. yes. Yeah. You're talking about... I have something you don't know about, right? <laughs> what you said, you don't have a defense to that first drink as a result of the mental obsession, but what... Is that what they refer to as the spiritual malady? Because I, I believe what you, you're talking about, it's a threefold disease, the mental obsession, mm -hmm. the physical craving, and the yes. spiritual malady. The spiritual malady. Talk about the spiritual so, malady for a bit, can you? Absolutely. So the spiritual malady is a little bit uh, more difficult to jump into because it really jumps into steps three and four, okay? This is the hard part is that when I would kept saying I'm a victim of circumstance, I was justified that I was poor orphan Laura. I have no parents. I had to struggle my way through life. You know, I was poor orphan Laura and I was using my alcoholism like justified by my circumstance. What the spiritual malady is, is um, it's on page 62. It's, it's that I'm profoundly selfish and self-centered. And that is the hardest thing for an alcoholic to grasp. Who, When you told me that the first time, I was like, no, I'm not. I give $50 to Greenpeace every month, you know? Sure, I'd get, I would be like, I'd give you the shirt off my back. But the truth is, is I would do things for other people if there was a camera crew watching me. So my only service to the world, absolutely, I was, I thought I was like, an altruistic person but the truth was is that every motive I had was selfish and self-centered I was a self-serving person I was unhappy because the world didn't go the way that I wanted to in the way that I thought that it should um, so it talks about my spiritual malady being when I am focused on myself my selfishness and what I don't feel is right in myself you in the world that I'm gonna be unhappy and when I'm there I have a hole in my soul and the truth is, is that I've tried lots of things to fill that hole in my soul, right? Uh, food and men and money and cigarettes and shopping and um, career goals. It says money, power, prestige, and property. Like there are these things. I will try anything to fill this gaping hole in my soul. And I felt it in my chest. It's chronic, restless, irritable, and discontent. No matter what you did for me or gave to me or said to me, I was chronically discontent. Um, so yes, my spiritual malady comes at an angle of being selfish and self-centered. However, as far as the 12 step program goes, that does not become apparent to an alcoholic until the end of step four. So up until the end of step four, it's, you know, it's something that, that the 12 steps reveals to you, 
but it really doesn't make sense until you actually do that work. But yes, spiritually, I was disconnected from a power greater than myself and from my fellows because I was really just walking around with this gaping hole in my soul, uh-huh. if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, spiritual malady. I'd like to talk about, if you don't mind, like um, the the family afterwards a little Please. bit, because yep. I think if people are listening to your podcast that, you know, they're worried about their sister or their friend or something like that. I, I always like to tell my story about my relationship. And just uh, just uh, before you do, Laura, just one second yes. on that profoundly selfish and self-centered behavior that you refer Absolutely. to that typifies the alcoholic. What's the, and, and you say that, you know, that's, that's a, uh, characteristic of the spiritual malady which i find in my experience was exactly the same <laughs> yeah. I, I i definitely exhibited uh in my whole life was profoundly selfish and self-centered and there's there, and so what what do they suggest to do that's almost the opposite of that isn't it in the whole backbone of of the 12 steps is then to give uh, your life in service yeah. of others which is very difficult for somebody who's lived a life of being selfish and self-centered Absolutely. And the truth is, is that AA for me, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, every single person that I've seen do the work 100% has stayed sober. The reason that that success rate, uh, air quotes of success of AA is that 100% of people don't do the work required because it's fucking hard. Okay. It's fucking hard. you're going to tell me that that I'm wrong about everything I ever thought in step four you're going to tell me I'm a selfish asshole in step three then you're going to tell me to go right all the wrongs I've done in step nine then you're going to tell me to give my life to service of others and it's actually the word we use in the book is altruism altruism means to give away and expect nothing in return and um I'm going to say something controversial are you ready yeah uh not nowhere in this book does it say that we have a medical disease it says i have a spiritual illness it says that i am profoundly selfish and self-centered and if i do these things i can have a whole new way of life and what i the way of life is is not something that an alcoholic in their cups if i told you that would be something that you're like hell yes let me give my time and love to other people for fun and for free let me put a a struggling alcoholic sobriety before the things that i like to do in my life that's not a good selling point do you know what i mean um but the truth is it's it's altruism and and the reason i don't like the word disease this is this is controversial is because i can't go up to a cancer patient and be like i have a disease as well but mine is treatable with a spiritual solution yep. and and service to others, right? Yep. They would tell me to go fuck right off. Mm. You know what I mean? It does say that I have a spiritual disease and that um, I will straighten out mentally and physically when I do so spiritually. And none of these steps are something I wanted to do. Every single one of them goes against my nature. But the truth is, is I had, it, AA was the last house on the block there was no other solutions for me. And that level of desperation, when I see that in others, I have so much hope for them. If you have nowhere else to go and I'm going to tell you to do some hokey shit and you're like, whatever, whatever, that's a great place to be because it says you have to be smashed. And it's true. I needed to be in a level of being smashed in order to 
follow the instructions as they're written because none of them are something I want to do. They all go against selfishness and self-centeredness the whole time. So you can tell me you're not self-centered. Let me see you round out step nine and prove that to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's, that's, that's what it looked like for me. I did not believe I was selfish and self-centered until I saw it in black and white in step four and then had to do the actions in step 12 and then live a life of helping other people or step nine and live a life of helping other people in step 12. I think that's so important what you've just said because yeah. the medical profession, you know, would at large, and my father, I've had, I had this conversation with him. He's a doctor. He's been a surgeon for his oh, entire wow. life. And, wow. you know, the, the solution to alcoholism, as you've just described, uh, for him, it, it's hard for him to comprehend that, yeah. you know, because the, the doctors and, and no disrespect to dad, if you're, you're listening to this, but the fact is they always think that there's a pill you can take yeah. or, you know, there's some sort of, um, you know, some sort of uh, hospital stay will fix your problem. It's, it's so hard to describe to people who are not true alcoholics and haven't been through the 12 steps this is the solution and the only solution if you have alcoholism like me yeah. yes yeah. if you are a heavy drinker and some bad experience happens or you get really sick or you're going to lose some everything and you can stop drinking so i like this story um my alcoholism was diagnosed when i stopped drinking not when i was drinking what that means is that my husband, I convinced him to drink as much as I did, okay? For some reason, he would drink and not destroy our lives. But he was a fraternity member in America, okay? He was a frat boy. They drank to, to alcohol poisoning every night. So the amount of alcohol seemed pretty irrelevant. I would convince him to drink every night. And I would go, why did you drink like that? And he would say, because you made it sound like a good idea. And so when I finally went into um, Alcoholics Anonymous, he goes, well, I'll just quit drinking with you. And I was like, thank you. I could use that support. So my husband stops drinking. He puts down the alcohol. He loses 25 kilos. He gets a promotion at work. He sleeps better. He's happy. He's running marathons. But when I put down the alcohol, everything for me got worse. Everything got unbearable. My life got completely unbearable. I could not exist in the world sober. So some people come into AA drinking a lot, a lot. And um, AA meetings are a great place to treat loneliness. So they have this place in these people who say, keep coming back and here's free coffee and they love them and they stop drinking. They don't need to do the things that I need to do as in the entire 12 steps to be sober. And it's the exact same thing with doctors that if they don't have a mental obsession, a phenomenon of craving for alcohol, like I do, how are they going to be able to treat that? If they don't know what I'm talking about, how are you going to be able to treat that? And as of now, there's not yet something I did. I went to the doctor before I finally came back to AA and I said, is there anything other than AA you can give me in order to stop drinking? You know, and he's like, sure thing. Here's some $600 pills that I literally didn't take one of them, you know, because a pill I could just not take. So, so they're, they're doing the best that they can. And this is a very hard solution. If everyone did the work required to stay sober, did that needed to, we would have to hold AA meetings in like, um, we would have to hold them in like, you know, football stadiums and soccer stadiums. And you know what I mean? So the truth is, is that AA as a 12 step program is a infallible 
way to recover from alcoholism. But the truth is, is that alcoholics are fallible and this isn't easy. And that's why most people don't do the work required. And the history about it is fascinating too, isn't it? The, you know, how it all arose out of uh, Carl Jung treating um, uh, alcoholics, including the founder of AA, uh, Bill Wilson. But he he was convinced that the only solution to alcoholics of the type you just described is yeah. is to have a profound spiritual experience, and that's really where the yeah. origins of AA began, isn't it? Do you know much about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I I do. However, the more that I learn, the more that I know that I don't know, which is really interesting. Cool. I do know. Um, I do know from the doctor's opinion what he's talking about, where he says, literally, dude, I know that miracles do happen, but I don't know how to give you that. I know how to give you pills. I know how to rehydrate you. I know how to give you therapy if you need therapy, but I don't have a pill for a profound spiritual experience. And his admission of powerlessness for a doctor must've been really hard for him. You know, it must've been really hard, but to this day, you know, there aren't any doctors who are, are able to prescribe me a profound spiritual experience. So, Mm. so, um, yeah, I do know as much of the history as I can about AA. There's always so much to learn. And I've realized there's a lot of um, there's a lot of AA rumors that don't tend to be true and things that I believe because older sober members say them that turn out not to be true. So, um, like yeah. What? With, well, the one I just got, you ready for uh, this one? Yep. They say that, this is opinion again. They say uh, Bill W. was promiscuous, that he cheated a lot. And that he- oh, I've heard that. Yeah, they've never, where is that written? Who said that? Like, as far as I know, that's a rumor. Like, and any recovered alcoholic wouldn't gossip about, uh, gossip about him. So the fact that we, like, say that, it's not written anywhere that that was a fact. That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. I just and, that. And he was a coffee addict afterwards which i don't think i think is pretty normal i was gonna say i was a coffee addict until recently as well (laughs) the first couple years you know so um but but yes i do what do i know about the beginning i know about um i know about the oxford group and i know about how that came about i know about um ebby being bill's friend and coming up and saying listen i have religion and that's how i'm sober and bill saying i want that but i hate religion there's not a chance bro Mm. and uh then him getting to a point of desperation being like you know whatever whatever i don't know who you are what you are but if you are i'm willing to do whatever it takes you know and that's a good start out prayer for a person like me is like honestly whatever i i have no other solutions and when he did that he had a profound spiritual experience and as a result of that told new the way that I know that this solution didn't come from an alcoholic that's selfish and self-centered like me is that it has to do with going against our complete nature and helping others. Totally. And I think that we should just clarify that for people who don't, aren't aware that the, the, the fact that it came from what was termed a religious experience is the whole thing that makes the 12 steps so appealing in my opinion, is that it's not religious, it's spiritual and you yeah. define your high power any old way you want to, which is all inclusive of all people from all backgrounds, they can come in, whether they have religious backgrounds or not. And, you know, I've 
seen that there are fellowships all over the world in places like Iran, you mm. know, in America, to you know, everywhere, Bangladesh, Korea, Russia, it's it's everywhere. So I mean, that's just gotta be It's probably the most one of the most important things for a new person considering Alcoholics Anonymous to know. The founder of AA was profoundly against organized religion and in his story, I think it's on page thirteen, it's around there, talks about how he felt about the church and that that wasn't gonna work for him. And um, powers greater than ourselves are wide and varied and completely inclusive. They don't go against any religion or not or lack thereof. And I like to always say that, you know, this isn't my higher power. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's pro it's absolutely not yours. You know what I mean? And um, it's not a it's not a, a deity higher power. And nowhere does it say that. So we don't actually go against any religion or for any religion, or for or against any lack thereof religion. So it's such an inclusive word that um, we have a whole chapter written to the agnostics, you know, that, listen, I, it says most of us come in with no desire for a higher power or contact with that at all. Most of us come in rejecting that idea and you know my my thought was like this is a pretty flimsy idea you know for you to tell me god's gonna save me or something you know like that seems pretty ridiculous but i had no other option and the truth is is you don't need to come to aa with any concept of a higher power if you follow the directions and the 12 steps that will be revealed to you whether you like it or not and it's not a religious god and i will punch a member in the face who likes to talk about their, <laughs> their religious God in meetings. I won't, I'm just kidding. But so, Laura, you know what so I'm, saying. I'm loving this conversation. I could keep talking forever, but there's a couple of things I want to get in before we end this interview, because um, I actually do have to go shortly, but the, the, the topic of the family afterwards, which you mentioned. Yeah, sorry. I love, I love that. AA so much. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that it's really important. I am married to a non-alcoholic and, you know, just a little, what he is, is his job is to go into companies and fix them that are broken. And um, for me, like, I, that's just kind of who he is, is he's a fixer. And, you know, alcoholism with, as far as a relationship goes, people at the end were like, why would you be with this woman, this alcoholic woman? And the truth was it didn't start out that way. And it was very, very, um, it was slow, you know, my alcoholism and descent into darkness was pretty, pretty slow at the end. When I um, finally recovered from alcoholism as a result of working the 12 steps, um, I woke up and I said to him, you know, you can go back to being the person you used to be. You know, I married a confident, strong, intellectual, really self really, um, he was like a dominant like figure. He knew who he was. He was a confident person. And when I got sober and finally looked at this person next to me, he wasn't the same. He was not confident. He couldn't make decisions. He was this person like the shell of a man that I'd married. And um, I kept saying to him, just go back to being who you were, go back. And he couldn't. So at about a year and a half of recovery, you know, we almost divorced. And what I see now is that over eight years of my drinking, not understanding it was alcoholism, this is what I did to him. I would say things like, 
uh, I need more help at home, then I'll be happy. So he would do that. And then I would say, you're not doing it the, the right way. I need you to work more and I'll be happy. So he'd go work more and then I would be unhappy. And then I'd say, I need, uh, you, you don't help out enough. Like I need you to be at home more and then I'll be happy. And then he'd do that and I wouldn't be happy. And I'd say, we, I need you to move here and then I'll be happy. He would move me here and then I wouldn't be happy. So for eight years, I'd be sending these messages to this poor man about what I needed him to change in order for me to be happy and it wouldn't work. So I get sober, wake up to this shell of a person and he ended up having to go to Al-Anon. And very, very quickly, my husband came home and sat me down and he goes, listen, I love you, but I'm no longer going to accept your bullshit. <laughs> and, um, you know, AA and Al-Anon are two different programs. But as a result of that, he works in Al-Anon program and becomes the best version of himself. And I've worked the AA program and become that. And together, we've actually been able to stay married for going on 12 years now, even through that. So, you know, there is a solution, not just for alcoholics, but also for our families. You know, AA, Al-Anon marriages don't usually work. Alcoholic Alcoholic relationships don't usually work, but if people want to put in the effort on their own part, like happy, joyous, and free families are absolutely on offer with Alcoholics Anonymous. So thanks for letting me just throw that in there. That's well. good. I'm glad that we got that bit because it's really important. But the other thing, just quickly, there's two more uh, questions really. And I find this one really interesting. And you, yes. you mentioned it right at the beginning and you were talking about the origins of your alcoholism. You said you were angry yes. since you were five. Yes. You know, you said that your childhood was not, you know, necessarily, uh, you didn't have any uh, real trauma or that, you know, they weren't subject to abuse like a lot of people. Um, I find this because, I mean, once we accept we've got the problem, that's one thing. And yes. for me, in my experience, I've been very curious as to the origins of my addiction issues um and i i too also i thought i had a very happy childhood so i mean there's some people who say we're born with this disease and mm -hmm. you know when you explain the phenomenon of craving which i too have mm. felt it's just peculiar isn't it because it's like well where does this come from it affects me but it doesn't affect you know joe blogs over here what why yeah what what you know, what is it that you think? Do you think that some of us are, are either born with it? Because I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, the background to all addiction issues is some sort of trauma, you know? Nope. <laughs> disagree. <You know>? okay, <laughs> totally good. disagree. Yeah, I totally right. disagree because like I said, people with much happier lives than me are alcoholic. And, you know, my older brother who did the, had the exact same experience I did is, is absolutely not an alcoholic. So what the big book tells me is that the phenomenon of craving and a mental obsession will never develop. So I believe in my heart that um, I am, was born alcoholic. Mm. So, you know, they refer to it as an allergy for alcohol. And I don't love the word allergy. My daughter has anaphylaxis to egg. And if she were to eat egg, her throat would close up. And for me, when I have access to alcohol, my throat opens wide, you know. So I don't really like that. But I do believe that physically I'm going to be different than a non-alcoholic. And that's just something I'm born with. I can't, it does say that it, that the illness progresses. So yes, there is a time in our lives where alcoholics don't drink too much, right? And so it progressively gets worse. It progressively becomes more uncomfortable to deal with and to live with, 
So that's the progressive nature, isn't it? Sure. So I'm going to keep drinking more and more because it progressively gets more uncomfortable to not be sober. I treated with my alcoholism with alcohol. And if it's progressive, I'm going to have to treat it with more and more alcohol as it progressed. So for me, I was born with it. Um, it says that no matter how much you drink, you will never develop alcoholism. And I believe that with my husband. And that's why I brought up his drinking, that he drank like a rock star. He was the lead singer of a band. He traveled like he's a fraternity brother. He drank as much as I did, but he never, ever developed the phenomenon of craving. And he wasn't going to. He doesn't mm. have alcoholism. So if that is my perception on it, yeah. then either you're born alcoholic or you're not. And it's, it has nothing to do with trauma. Okay. Well, I think, I think, um, you know, I, for, for people it might be different, but I, I, I sort of agree with you for at least for my uh, own experience. Mm, experience. I, I just right. can't identify any trauma. And I thought I, I was born with it, but I've, you know, because I've been through uh, three rehabs and I hopefully have been to the last, but the, uh, so you know, I learned a lot about what we, uh, can't forget the forget the actual term of it but they they say that we can inherit trauma from generations past so you know whether it's whether in this lifetime or previous lifetimes or whatever people might find this of uh, uh, too far to to believe but um have you heard of that that we can inherit uh, I think in Scientology, they say that as well. But the truth is, if I really just accept that I'm selfish and self-centered on the inside, and I do things based yeah. on self and not in the, the interest of other people, I step on people's toes, they retaliate. In my experience, the evidence with just accepting that, just accepting what it says in the big book, and then taking the, the alternate steps and actions, my compulsion to drink and obsession with alcoholism with alcohol has been removed completely and hasn't come back for years and years. So, uh, no, again, I still wouldn't, I, I don't need any other outside solutions or thoughts about why I'm an alcoholic. The truth is, is if I just do what the instructions are, my alcoholism goes into remission and it's stayed there as a result of all the things that are a result of the steps, you know, the, connection with a higher power in the life of altruism service to others. I have a primary purpose today, which is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. I'm not choosing to stay sober one day at a time. That's a bunch of shit. There's no way I could choose to stay sober an hour at a time. You know, I, uh, that those things had to be removed. It had to be bigger than that for me. As I was asking that question, I realized how ridiculous it sounded. <laughs> you know, job, and I have I have heard that you know there's a lot of psycho mumbo jumbo type of therapy there's... that I've been uh, exposed to, but I actually think there might be some truth in it. But whether there's truth in it or not, it doesn't really matter as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't concerned. matter once you once you accept it. in this lifetime that you you know you've got this problem, yeah. well then let's deal with yes. it here. Okay, Laura, last question. Yes. Um, the, the, the title of the podcast is The Gift of Addiction. Do you believe that addiction is a gift or whether it can be a gift? I read that and I kind of thought it through and I just, what do I think? Today, I personally am grateful for my alcoholism. I'm grateful that I have it. And the reason that I say that is because I don't know, I don't have experience with not being an alcoholic. So if I were, the truth is, is that, um, my, my life 
in alcoholism now today and being a recovered person is used to help other people in a profound way. I help as many people as, as I can um, to recover from alcoholism. And that's like a tactile like thing that I get to see being of service to other people in this world. So, so my alcoholism to me is a gift as an alcoholic because of the profound goodness that has come out of it. I wouldn't have had this life today, this usefulness today, this usefulness to others, this purpose in the world, if I Oh, I, I lost you. you. I lost you for a moment. That's all right. In, sorry, incoming call. So I would not have this purpose today if I wasn't an alcoholic. Okay. Would I have been okay not being an alcoholic? I don't know. I don't know. I probably would have found some other way to screw my life up. So for me personally, <laughs> as an alcoholic, my alcoholism was a gift as today I am a purpose and use to others. And I have a great life because of that. Totally. And, and since when I first came up with that name, The Gift of Addiction, um, the more people I interview like yourself, it's it's sort of, it's dawned on me that I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should have called it The Gifts of Recovery. But of yes. course, you can't ever get The Gifts of Recovery without having to go through all the pains of addiction Absolutely. First. So it's one of the I wouldn't have thing. had recovery without the pain of the addiction in the first place, so... I think the point is for those who, who are listening who might be struggling with addiction issues or alcoholism, the recovery process is well worth it. As you've heard from Laura today, that Absolutely. it's you know you can live a a life beyond your wildest dreams. Absolutely. Thanks so much for talking to me, Bertie. Oh, Laura, it's been bloody awesome. Thank you. So just hold on the line, and we'll say goodbye. I'll just talk to you after. I'll stop the recording. Thank you, Laura, for coming on, and uh, thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.